Go to Jonah 1, and I want you to mark that. We're going to then switch over to Acts 8. So just kind of put this connection card or your bulletin or some marker in Jonah 1. Then after you've done that, we're doing double duty today. You have to go to another passage, Acts chapter number 8. While you turn there, I'll make mention of tonight. We have one of our uh, veteran missionaries to Italy, Stetson Plank, and his wife and one of their children will be with us this evening. Uh, he'll be speaking and, and preaching to us this evening. Uh, Stetson's in Italy, obviously a very heavy Roman Catholic population. About 90% of the population would uh, be a Roman Catholic. Uh, we have a very heavy Roman Catholic area here as well, and most all of us have family or friends that um, go to a Roman Catholic church. And if you've been trying to maybe share the gospel or, or have an inroad or understand a little bit more about that or what the differences are or how do I bridge the gap with, with Jesus there, then I would say that Stetson would be a great guy to talk to this evening because a huge portion of his ministry is exactly that. So I encourage you to come back out tonight at 6 o'clock, and I promise you that you'll enjoy him. So Jonah 1 is where you're marked. Then flip over to Acts chapter number 8, where we're going to launch from. This will make sense after a little while on why exactly we're launching from Acts chapter number 8 this morning. But I want us to see Acts 8, a story here that's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip is a man that's going to be sent by God to meet this eunuch from Ethiopia in his chariot. And this will make sense and relate to Jonah here momentarily. Acts chapter number 8. Look at verse number 26. This story begins. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. Kind of similar to what God tells Jonah to do, ironically. Arise and go. Philip actually obeys, though. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of, of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come up to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself unto this chariot. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said unto him, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he had read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said unto him, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, this morning, the sermon is utterly simple, as simple as probably one has ever been for me. It's a truth that I want, have been wanting to give to the church family, and I've touched on it a time or two briefly uh, back in the late fall, early winter, working through the book of Habakkuk. We touched on this just a little bit, but... I have been waiting in the back of my mind to get to a, a passage or a point in Scripture where I felt that it was the text was saying what I wanted to say, not just to infuse a sermon that I felt like giving. But this is, it's, it's very simple. It's very simple. But it's very profound. 
And I hope this morning to press a truth into you, a truth that you will not forget for the rest of your life. Now, that's a big goal. I understand that's a lofty goal. There aren't very many things in life that you can remember and hang on to for the rest of your life. But frankly, this truth this morning is important enough. And this principle, though I'll use Jonah as a spotlight on it, this principle extends far beyond Jonah. This principle is important enough that it should stick with you the rest of your life. So this morning, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you what I want you to know. I'm going to give you why I want you to know that. And there's, there's a lot of meat there. I'm going to give you what I want you to do based on that knowledge and why I want you to do that. So here is, in one sentence, here's the truth that I want you to know. Now this is a, it's going to seem a little bit theological or seminary-ish, just the verbiage of this phrase, but I'm going to give it to you. Here it is. Here's what I want you to know. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is God's self-disclosure regarding the reconciling of all things to himself in Christ Jesus. I'm going to repeat that. From Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover, the entire book is God's self-revelation regarding the reconciling of all things to himself in Christ Jesus. So what that means is first, this book is designed to be God's self-revelation. This is meant to teach you the nature and the character of God. If you want to know what God is like, you don't go to your neighbor and just ask them. You don't go to some other religion and and look there. You look inside of God's Word, and this part of God's Word is designed to show you this is who God is. It's designed to teach you what His nature and what His character is. And beyond that, it's designed to show you that God is reconciling, redeeming all things to Himself in Christ Jesus. And this book, from cover to cover, is meant to teach you that over and over and over and over again. Adrian Rogers used to say that you can cut the Bible in any place and it will bleed because the blood of Jesus stains every page. Now what what was Rogers saying? Rogers was saying this reconciling all things into himself, that's over and over again. The gospel is told in the Bible over and over again. New Testament, Old Testament, epistles, Pentateuch, doesn't matter. Anywhere you turn, it's supposed to teach you about God. It's supposed to teach you about Jesus Christ, and it's supposed to give you the gospel story. Now, why would I want you to know that? Why would I want to spend the next half hour talking about that sentence? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. I'll give you several. One is that tells you how to approach the Bible. And the emphasis is on you, not me, because you expect me as the guy who stands up here and talks, as the preacher, as the guy who has theological education, to be someone who knows how to approach the Bible. And that's true. You should expect that. But you should know how to approach the Bible. Because the Bible is crystal clear that if you're saved, if you're bought with with the blood of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you know him, then the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and you now are a priest yourself. There's priesthood of the believer. You now have the privilege and responsibility to approach God and have a relationship with him yourself. You now should have a prayer life and you should enter boldly and you should go to God, not just someone going on your behalf. You should. You should open up his word and read it and the Holy Spirit should talk to you and you should understand his word. Not just me, not just clergy, not just church staff, but you have that responsibility and privilege. So it's important for you to know how to approach the Bible. Beyond that, this truth is vital, not just approaching, but understanding the Scripture. 
If you're going to understand what you read as you look at God's Word, you've got to know that. This is why we launched from Acts chapter 8 today. You have a man who went to Jerusalem to worship. It was a long trip. He made the trip. You have a man who's reading Isaiah, the scroll. That day and age, for you to have your own personal copy of Isaiah and be reading it, not many people had that. So this guy's obviously made a deep investment in in religion and trying to figure this out. But he's reading the scroll, and Philip comes to him and says, look, you know what you're reading? He's like, I can't figure it out, man. I need somebody to tell me. And so Philip, the Bible says, begins to not talk about Isaiah and the history and the context, and here's what Isaiah was, and here's when he lived, and he was around this king, and stuff like that's important. But what Philip does is he begins to teach and preach Jesus to him. And he begins to show him, look, that was about Jesus. That was the gospel. That was God redeeming all things to himself in Christ Jesus. Let me show you. And through that showing, through that understanding of Scripture, this man begins to understand it. The Bible says he believes on Jesus and then he is baptized. That's why there's one of the many verses that show you why here at our church we don't baptize infants. Because he says, look, can I be baptized? And Philip says, hey, if you believe, then you can be baptized. It's, it's really difficult for a little newborn or six-month-old or one-month-old to believe cognitively. You need to be at that spot before you're baptized biblically. So Philip says, look, here's Jesus. And as he shows him Jesus in Isaiah, then this man's understanding is open. Then he begins to understand and grasp what the Scripture was actually saying. So this is paramount for you to understand that if you can plant this seed in your heart as you approach the Bible, this will begin to produce fruit in your life as you open God's Word and you read it for yourself. I would say this, this is important because it actually gives you a measuring rod to know what good preaching is and is not. So good preaching should be Christocentric, meaning it should circle and center around Jesus. Good preaching should, it should at the end or in the middle or at the beginning, some point, should make its way back to Jesus and show you that this is designed to be about Christ. This is designed to show you Him. And this is what you find that Jesus or the Apostle Paul or, or many people in the Bible do with the Old Testament. They say, look, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So good preaching should be Christocentric. And you should, in your own mind, know that no matter how good of a communicator somebody is, no matter how much you like their radio broadcast, no matter how much you love that podcast and they make you laugh or they seem cool or they seem like it, it really influences my heart, if it doesn't go back to Jesus and it doesn't go back to the gospel, there's something iffy there. There's something wrong there. So it helps you to understand what good preaching is and is, is not. I would say this, without this and this may be the most important. Our children grow up in homes and in churches where they have a really good baseline for morality, but they're gospel poor. Without this, it's real easy just to make David and Goliath about you conquer your giants. Daniel in the lion's den, that's, that's about standing for right, having a prayer life, having some courage. And that's a valid application, but it can't stop there. It can't just be left as stand for right, have courage, and pray. Because if it could stop there, you'd have to admit that's not inherently Christian. A Mormon could teach their children from Daniel, stand for right, have courage, pray. You could teach that in a Jewish synagogue, stand for right, have courage, pray. 
It's not Christian. Christian is when it goes back to Jesus, when it goes back to the gospel and begins to show you that's more than just morals. That's more than just do's and don'ts. And if we fail to understand that sentence, then we begin to teach stories just personally at home or in our devotions or in in Sunday school or junior church that aren't rooted in the gospel at all, and we start to shortchange. And what that does in the long run is it produces these little Pharisees and hypocrites that run around. They know what to do and what not to do, but there's nothing in the heart. The gospel hasn't penetrated. And that's problematic, I I would think. So this understanding, this concept, that... When it's all said and done, this book is designed to show me God's self-disclosure and that he is redeeming and reconciling all things to himself in Jesus Christ. It's supposed to give me the gospel over and over and over and over again. It is vitally important for someone to understand. As a child, my favorite story was Daniel and the lion's den. I heard it many times. I would, if there was a request in some class or whatever, I would ask, you know, Daniel the Lion's Den. I got to a point where I could repeat the story probably at an, at an early age. I'm not trying to be overly critical, but I never at one time had someone tell me Daniel in the Lion's Den and give me the gospel through it. Never once. And it's there. Like it's right there on the page that he's a man who is betrayed by those closest to him, although he is innocent blood. He's done nothing wrong and they betray him. He's a man who's wrongfully accused and is thrown into this pit. Stone is rolled in front of it to seal the pit and expect it to never come out again. But somehow in the morning, that's rolled away. The king comes, and Daniel comes walking out supernaturally, ends up cheating death, so to speak, and it shows you in Daniel a picture of Jesus and a picture of the gospel. And that has to be interwoven in our own personal application of reading the Bible. That has to be interwoven in our teaching, in our preaching, and what we intake. That has to be part of how we view Scripture. Otherwise, we're handicapped and we're, we're gospel poor. Failure to understand this will, it'll jade and shape our children in unhealthy ways, honestly. So that is what I want you to know. That's, I think that there's some valid reasons why we should know that and why that should be important to us, why that should matter to us. How, how do we approach God's Word as a whole? How do we approach the book of Jonah? But here's what I want you to do, and it's simple. It's very simple. I want you tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, 10 years from now, I want you to filter your Bible intake through that. I want you, as you take in God's Word and you begin to read it, that you filter it through that. Because if you don't, you begin to read the Bible in very selfish ways. You begin to look at Scripture as how is this about me and how is this going to influence me strictly and you don't see how it's about Jesus, which it is about Jesus. When you do that, you begin to become jaded and and view the Bible strictly as this this roadmap for your life. If you don't have that, then this is just, hey, my personal guide. And is the Bible given to teach us, to give us instruction in righteousness, to help us, to tell us, hey, stay away from that and and go to that? Oh, certainly. But above and beyond all that, if you don't have that as the primary filter, then it just becomes do's and don'ts. It just becomes morals. And you begin to make this just about you and your own personal guide to life and, and how should this shape me. And that that's a, that's a bad filter to push everything through. 
And don't, if, if that's you and that's what you've done for a period of years, don't feel too hard on yourself because people miss the boat on this all the time. I'm amazed that, that people will they'll quote scripture to me that's not scripture. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness, as the Proverbs say. <laughs> that, that was Franklin. Like, the Proverbs never said that. People say things that are antithetical to Scripture, like their, like their Bible. God helps those who help themselves. That's in the Bible. It's the opposite of that's in the Bible. God helps those who can't help themselves and recognize it and say, I need your help. So don't feel too bad if you miss it, because people miss it all the time. But don't continue to miss it. This is not, at its core, designed to be your roadmap and your guide, Okay. If you want to buy the Honda Accord or the Toyota Camry and you just can't decide, don't go looking for an answer here. <laughs> Read the Bible, but it's not going to tell you to buy the Accord or the, or the Camry. And if you do find an answer for that, you're few fries short of a Happy Meal. I mean, there's just, there's not, there's something wrong there. God's not going to give you an answer from that from the Bible. It's not supposed to. It's supposed to show you who he is and you view him. The choir just saying about holy is he. You're supposed to see that and be like, wow, I should change. I fall really short. You're supposed to see the gospel over and over, and that's supposed to punch you in the heart over and over and over and, and draw you into that love relationship again and again and again and again. That is what this book is designed to do. So what do I want you to do? I want you to filter your Bible intake through that. Through how does this show me God's nature and his character? How does this show me the gospel? And I ask you to do that, not because it's practical. It is practical, but because it's biblical. Like it's intensely biblical. I want you to look, before we get to Jonah, I want you to look at a couple passages of Scripture. Go to Luke 24, and if you... If you don't have a Bible or if you struggle to get there fast enough, we'll put these on the screen for you. Luke 24. This is Jesus who's a, beginning this conversation with two guys walking on the road to Emmaus. They're going to walk 60 furlongs, which is about seven and a half miles. So they're going to spend a few hours together walking. Jesus has just risen from the dead. He showed himself to some of the ladies. And those ladies have come, and they've begun to spread the word. It's Sunday. And Peter, John, some other men have come. They found an empty tomb, but they haven't seen the risen Lord. And there's all this hubbub happening. And Jesus joins himself to these two disciples. And the Bible says that their eyes are, are fastened or they're, they're, they're closed. I don't know how exactly that happened, but somehow Jesus was able to veil himself so they didn't recognize him immediately. And he begins to have a conversation with them and asks them, hey, guys, what's up? And they begin to unpack this and tell him the story in verse number 24. And they say, certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher, and they found it even so as the women had said, but him, Jesus, they saw not. So they said, look, here's what's happening, the, the crucifixion, this, that. We think he rose from the dead, but we haven't seen him. But people said they've seen him. This is, we're not sure what to think of all this. And then Jesus begins to talk to them in verse 25, and he says, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? What's Jesus saying? Didn't you see that in the Bible? Like it said it all along. I was right there. I was on the page. Didn't, shouldn't you have known that this would have happened? You shouldn't have been so messed with with the crucifixion that you should have known that. He continues verse number 27. And beginning at Moses... 
In all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus says, let me go Pentateuch, let me go Moses, let me go prophets. Let me just walk through this little by little for hours as we walk. And I'm going to show you, there I am, and there I am, and there I am again, and there I am again. And look, boo, it's me. Look, there I am. There I am, over and over and over again. I'm going to show you that this was supposed to be all about me, all about salvation, all about the gospel. Here it is. Verse number 32 says this. After Jesus has left, they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while, we, while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? This is why you should filter your Bible intake through this. Because this is the only thing that stands a chance of your heart burning within you as you begin to read the scriptures and the scriptures actually being opened up to you is to see that this is all about the gospel. It's to see that this is all about Jesus. And they say when he did this, like we knew those passages, we knew those scriptures, we could have quoted all them. But when he showed us it was about him, there was this energy in us. There was this fire that came in us that was inside that was, wow. And, and all of a sudden it felt like the scriptures were opening up and I was able to know what they really were. And that process that happened for these two guys, that process that happened for this eunuch as Philip goes to him and says, Isaiah, that's all about Jesus. Let me show you. That process can happen to you over and over and over and over again. I want you to go to Romans 1 and we'll see Paul does this. He takes the Old Testament. He takes the scriptures and he applies it to Jesus. And he says, look, this was all about him. This was all meant to point to him. Romans 1, verse number 17. We mentioned this verse last week. It's a verse that converted a Catholic monk who wallowed in misery trying to work his way to heaven. Figured out he couldn't do it by reading this. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it's written, the just shall live by faith. What is Paul doing here? Paul's taking a quote from Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet, and he's using that quote that really wasn't, Habakkuk didn't know necessarily in his mind that this was going to be about Jesus and applied to the gospel, but he takes that and says, look, Habakkuk wrote that, and this was meant to show us Jesus. This was meant to show us the gospel, that we must live by faith. And he takes that scripture and says this, he applies it to his doctrinal statement on salvation in Romans. Go one more place before we get to Jonah. I know we're turning a few. Go one more, Acts 17. This is what Paul says was his process or his philosophy as he went to Jewish people. And he tried to lead them to the Lord. What would Paul do? Well, Acts 17, verse number 1, 2, and 3 tells us this is how Paul went about it. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. And three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. What's out of the Scriptures mean? It's talking about the Old Testament. He takes these scriptures, reasons with them, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. What is Paul doing? Paul's doing what Philip did. Paul's doing what Jesus did. He's taking the Bible and he's saying, look, it's all Jesus. Look, it's all gospel. This is meant to show you him. This is meant to show you that he should have suffered, that he needed to die, that he rose from the dead. This is meant to show you that over and over and over again. So this, 
process of filtering your Bible intake through how does this show me the nature and character of God? How does this show me the gospel? It's more than practical. It is practical, but it's more than that. It's biblical. This is what Jesus did with the Scriptures. This is what Paul did with the Scriptures. This is what the apostles did. This is what we as New Testament Christians should do with the Scriptures. Understanding that this is God's self-disclosure and this is meant to show me that he's reconciling all things into himself in Christ Jesus. That being said, go to Jonah. I want to illustrate this with Jonah and show you Jonah does this. And so does every book of the Bible. But there have been a measure of, of points in Jonah where I wanted to stop and jump on this specific thought. But I just thought, you know what, I'm going to save them all for, for one day and we'll just walk through them together. I want you to see in Jonah, there, if you're filtering your Bible content and your intake through that filter, then you will, there will be portions of Jonah that pop off the page at you that otherwise would not have popped off the page at you. So one of them is Jonah 1 verse number 9. Jonah is going to give us God's self-disclosure. He's going to give us a statement about the nature and the character of God, which is vitally important. Jonah says in Jonah 1.9, in the middle of this conversation with these sailors while a storm is happening, that he said to them, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Now what is Jonah doing? He's giving this creedal statement in the middle of all this to say, look, stop, here's who God is. He's God of heaven who made everything. He's creator God. That's an important statement. That's not just the Genesis creation account. That's Jonah echoing that and saying, look, here's who God is. Go over to Jonah 4, verse number 2. We will, in a few weeks' time, be at this passage of Scripture, and I will elaborate heavily on this, but I will give you a bit of a teaser now. Jonah 4, 2. Jonah makes a statement that is profound and deep and awesome. He says... And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? So Jonah is going to say, understand context, Nineveh just turned to God. Jonah is angry about it. So Jonah is going to actually level a complaint against God, but it's a bit ironic because it's actually a praise, but he uses it as a complaint. So he says, look, God, didn't I tell you this? That's, this is why I ran to Tarshish. I was at home. Your word came to me, so go to Nineveh, and I was like, God, you're going to do this, 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 this. He said, didn't I tell you you would do this? So he continues. What did he tell God he was going to do? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish. So here's why I ran. It wasn't because I was scared. It wasn't because I was afraid. It was because I knew this. I knew thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. So Jonah, mad at God, says, God, I knew it. I told you that you would, that you would be gracious, that you would be merciful, that your anger would be slow, that you would give them kindness, and that you tell them you're going to judge them, but you're going to repent of the evil. You're going to change your mind. Now I'm not going to judge you. See, I knew this was happening. And Jonah, the little, I have so many words for Jonah. He is a mess. Jonah is mad. He doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want them to get God's mercy. He doesn't want them to get God's grace. He wants them squashed. And he said, I knew if I went here, you would be good and gracious and merciful, slow to anger. What is Jonah? Now, that's an important verse. 
Maybe the most important verse in all of Jonah, because what is Jonah doing? He's giving you God's self-disclosure. This is God saying, here's who I am. I'm gracious. I will give you things that you do not deserve. I will give you life and breath and family and health and salvation. And you don't deserve a bit of it. My grace. He's saying God's merciful. I will refuse to give you things that you do deserve. That you deserve some punishment. You deserve hell. You deserve this. And in my mercy, I'm going to hold it back. I'm slow to anger. Great kindness. Jonah's saying God is not some primitive deity who's trying to throw lightning bolts at you and get you and get revenge and you should, you know, quake and tremble in fear because he's, he wants to squash you all the time. No. He's saying God is slow to anger, great kindness. That, those verses should pop off the page at us when we begin to filter our intake of the Bible through how does this show me God's nature and character? How does this show me the gospel? And Jonah does that. He shows you at several different points in time the nature and character of God. But beyond that, he shows you over and over again that God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ Jesus. He shows you the gospel over and over. I want you to see a few of them. Look in Jonah 1, verse number 2. There are parallels between Jonah and Christ that you see over and over again. And Jesus is a true and a better Jonah. But you see it over and over again. Verse 1, or verse 2 of chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. In Jesus, we have this true and better Jonah who's given a mission that will require humility, self-sacrifice, and is frankly unpalatable. And Jonah chooses to run from it, but Jesus chooses to take the cup, to drink from the cup, and to have all the dregs of God's wrath poured out on him, and he accepts it. Jonah runs in pride while Jesus humbles himself and becomes obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You find in this verse here, verse number two, that in Jesus you have a true and a better Jonah who is bringing good news of salvation to Gentiles who do not deserve the good news at all. And God says, Jonah, I want you to really break a mold of Judaism. I want you to go to the Gentiles and I want you to give these people this message so that they'll turn to me and that is, that's meant to show us what's coming in the future. That there's a true and better Jonah who comes and offers salvation freely to all and breaks down the barriers and says it's no longer Jew and Gentile. It's no longer if you're, if you're Greek or Jew. And Romans says that over and over again. It's not if you're bond or free. It's not if you're male or female. It's not if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter. That all of us, the ground is level at the foot of the cross and that is given to us in Jesus. You find at the end of chapter 1, one of my favorites, that Jonah, you find in verse number 13, you get to this point where he's about to be thrown into the sea. And he elaborates. And why does he elaborate? I think to show us Jesus. Verse number 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land. If you've been here for a few weeks, you know we've already taught through this and you're familiar with the story. If you haven't, it's online. You can listen to it. I apologize. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought. It was tempestuous against them. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it has pleased thee. So they took up Jonah, cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. 
They offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and they made vows. In Jesus Christ, we have a true and a better Jonah who is cast out into the storm to save those who stand no chance of saving themselves. And though he's cast onto the waters for us, it produces a peace for us so that we in turn can turn to the Lord and worship the Lord, and salvation is offered through his sacrifice, the sacrifice of one many are saved. You find in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that Jonah prays this prayer. And this, this whole passage here, chapter 2, is, is riddled with the Psalms. Jonah was obviously a man who had Scripture on his mind and lips as he is seemingly going to the grave, as did our Lord. And he says in verse number 2, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. He heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Thou hast cast me into the deep, into the midst of the seas, and floods come past me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I'm cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. In Jesus, you have a true and a better Jonah, who in inestimable grief cries a cry of forsakenness beyond anything ever imagined or equaled since. And Jonah he strains human language almost to this breaking point to try to depict the grief that he's going to, the forsakenness that he feels that he has. And it's in Jesus that he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jonah's meant to point us there, but it really the, the real type of Jonah is what Jesus says in the Gospels. There's only one prophet that Jesus said, I'm like him, that we know of. That he clearly in the gospel says, that's me. He says, it's Jonah. Jonah 1 verse 17 says that the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The end of chapter 2 verse number 10 says, the Lord spake unto the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. In Jesus, we have a true and a better Jonah who's entombed three days but then victoriously, somehow supernaturally, walks out alive. And although Jonah came out smelling like fish vomit and was still a mess, Jesus raises from the dead victorious, glorious, supernaturally in power and in might. In all of this, Jonah, it's, I mean, really, we've only covered 25, 27 verses, but you can see already in this, in this story that it's meant to show you the gospel. It's the gospel according to Jonah. It's meant to show you there's this mission that's given that I want to give good news to Gentiles and I want them to be saved and, and I'm going to cast myself upon the water so that they, although they're toiling and they're rowing hard to do it themselves, they cannot. So I'm going to save them and be buried three days and three nights and rise again in victory. It's all meant to show us Jesus. In this book, Jonah, all of the books in the Bible work together to show us over and over and over again the gospel. It's meant to show you from cover to cover, beginning to, beginning to end. This is God's self-disclosure. Here's who I am. You want to know me? Don't stare at a sun with your special glasses tomorrow for hours. You can if you want. You're just not going to get to know God that way. You want to know me? Here. You want to be reminded of the gospel? You want to be renewed in your mind? transformed by that remember the gospel 
Remember that this for us, for our children, for our church, it's, it's not just do's and don'ts. Jonah is more than wave the white flag of surrender and don't run from God and the discipline that's there. It, it is that, but above and beyond that, it's meant to show you Jesus Christ over and over and over again. And that is profoundly important because that's the only hope that you have through the Spirit of God that you open up your Bible and your heart begins to burn within you. It's the only hope you have. You want to open up Scripture? You want to understand this book? That's it. That's how you do it. You see that this is meant to be all about Him. That's meant to be about the Gospel. It's meant to show me that. You want to have a standard to gauge good preaching by? You want your kids to have heart, not just act like little robots? You have to get that. What, what would be more important than that? That is, in a nutshell, in a terse way, how to approach the Bible. And you can see in our study of Jonah already, and you, you can do that with every book of the Bible, that it shows you over and over and over again, Jesus Christ, the gospel. He dies to save sinners, is buried and raises from the dead. And it's meant to show us who we are in him.